You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Palm Sunday. As many of you may know, is no ordinary day in the life of the church. It is a day that we know marks the beginning of the final week of the God-man Jesus' life. It is a week that was filled with considerable tension as it inaugurates at the height of Jesus' popularity, but would conclude with a betrayal that would lead to his death. It is the week that God's promise of redemption in Genesis would be realized through the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of his only son. It is the week that the ministry of Jesus would culminate into its ultimate purpose. And as odd as it may seem to do in the middle of July, I want to invite us to reflect on this day as we consider our passage this morning, wherein the gospel writer John unpacks some of the initial events of that week. Events that are taking place during the annual Jewish festival of Passover. This festival is undoubtedly one of the most important in the life of the Jewish people. As the city of Jerusalem would swell from a population of about 100,000 to upwards of a million plus. Jews who were scattered all over the ancient Near East would make pilgrimage to the holy city in order to celebrate one of the greatest events in the history of their people. The day that God would inflict judgment on Pharaoh for his brutal and unjust treatment of the children of God. Passover was a time to remember and celebrate the exodus of the Israelites from the oppressive regime of Egypt as God would lead them through the wilderness into a promised land of their own. So this was no ordinary festival, but the Super Bowl of festivals that would draw massive crowds into the Jewish capital year after year. However, this year, would prove to be distinctly different from any other that had come before it. This year, Jesus would make what is described as his so-called triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. The gospel writers help us to see that Jesus, with sovereign intentionality, would enter into Jerusalem by mounting a donkey riding it down the Mount of Olives where he could see the city and the city could see him. He would ride up through the Eastern Gate as he is met by an excited multitude. But what's interesting about these turn of events is that Jesus up until this point has been relentless about maintaining what scholars refer to as the messianic secret. All throughout the gospel narratives, time and time again, Jesus would respond to specific requests or statements concerning himself by proclaiming that his hour had not yet come. So why now? 
Why the public spectacle and fanfare? Why the dramatic entry into a recurring annual feast? What made Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday so momentous? I mean, in the, in the grand scheme of Jesus' life and moments in Scripture, this little scene in the 12th chapter of John seems rather mundane and unimportant. We've read of him turning water into wine, walking on the surface of the ocean, causing the blind and deaf to see and hear, bringing the deceased back to life. These are moments that command awe and wonder. So why pause to consider a moment like this? You see, the crowd that was present in and around the city would not have missed this moment. It's why they surrounded Jesus in pandemonium and excitement. For many of us today, donkeys are animals of little significance. They serve as wall decor for kids' games at birthday parties or or clumsy characters on cartoon shows that we laugh at. But in the ancient world, the donkey was a symbol of peace, royalty, and kingship. Ancient writings showcase kings equating themselves to donkeys, their, their counselors advising them to make their entrance by mule rather than horse. In the ancient world, and as is demonstrated in the Hebrew scriptures, donkeys were the optimal mode of transportation for royal figures. And so here we have Jesus, a man who was known to walk almost everywhere he went as he fulfills the words of the prophet Zechariah, mounting a donkey, the symbol of royalty and kingship, in order to make his way into the capital city of the Jews. This entry was no accident. It was no coincidence. This was not a mistake. This was the dawning of a new day. The inauguration of a new kingdom, the coronation of a new king. This entry served as the official announcement to Jerusalem and the surrounding world that Jesus was in fact the king. And this kingship would prove to to be unlike any other that came before it. You see, Jesus was making it abundantly clear that he was the king. You see, Caesar may be a king. Herod may be a king. Nero may have been a king, but Jesus is in fact the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is subject to no one's jurisdiction, but they are in fact subject to his. Rulers and presidents are placed by the sovereign hand of King Jesus, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so in this seemingly irrelevant moment, the reality of Jesus' rule and reign was being made known and there was nothing anybody could do about it. And it is with that reckoning, it is with the reckoning of that reality that I want to spend the rest of our time this morning considering the simple question, who is King Jesus? Who is this man that 
the crowd pronounces as king and cries out Hosanna for? Who is this man that the religious leaders of the day detest? Who is this man that the Gentile Greeks are desperate to meet? Who is King Jesus? It's a question that could be answered in any number of ways. But for our purposes this morning, I want to make note of three. King Jesus as political zealot, King Jesus as imposter, or King Jesus as glorified Savior. This morning, as we walk through this gospel passage, I want us to consider whether or not King Jesus was a political zealot, was he an imposter, or was he in fact the glorified Savior? Turn with me to that 12th chapter of John and specifically verses 12 through 18 as we examine first King Jesus as political zealot. The gospel writer John pens these words. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. You see, Israel is no stranger to oppressive kingdoms. It, is a long, it has a long-standing history of being under the thumb of corrupt governments. Babylon, Assyria, Persia, just to name a few. And by this point, it had been occupied and ruled over by the Greco-Roman Empire for a little over a century. Caesar had no regard for their God and his laws. And their allegiance to Yahweh came secondary to their allegiance to Rome. Forced to increasingly pay taxes from the little money that they had in support of a government that had little care for their people or their traditions. And as the years went by, the religious and political tension grew so thick you could cut it with a knife. The Jewish people were tired of the corruption and what seemed to be the greatest threat to their flourishing. Zealous leaders had risen up time and time again in order to lead rebellious revolts at attempts to procure freedom from their enemies and reclaim their independence. Most would fail miserably. Others would experience minor success, but nothing could come close to putting a stop to the ever-growing Roman Empire. The Jewish people were fed up, and their anticipation for the promised Messiah grew greater and greater as the years went by, 
fully expecting that he would overthrow the Romans and secure their freedom once and for all. And it is into that cultural backdrop that Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem as he is met by what seems to be a crowd of devoted followers. People who had seen, participated in, or heard of his powerful ministry. For three years, they've heard of, they, for three years, they've heard him talk about the kingdom of God being near and witnessed him perform miracle after miracle, doing the impossible like raising Lazarus from the dead. As far as this crowd was concerned, their Messiah had come. God had kept his promise and sent them a savior. Their king was riding into the great city as they waved their palm branches, signifying their affirmation of Jesus' kingship as they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, meaning save us now. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. But you see, this was a loaded declaration, pregnant with expectations of conquest over the powers of Rome. And to be honest, I don't blame them. In fact, there are places in my heart, and I would venture to say places in yours, where we are right there with this crowd that as we cry Hosanna, as we declare Jesus as king, that declaration is coming with, with particular expectations. You see, Rome, like every nation that came before it and that would come after it, ruled with a sword of injustice and plunder. They had no regard for the sanctity of human life, nor care for the poor in their midst. As long as it was in the interest of Rome maintaining its power, there was no end to the unrighteous deeds it was willing to commit. Deeds that for far too long were having devastating effects on the people of Israel. And so in many ways, this crowd was right. They were right to be frustrated and angry and tired of the tyrannical rule of Rome. They were right to desire a new kingdom and a better kingdom. They, they were right to desire a new king and a better king, but they were wrong for how they allowed the geopolitical realities of their day to be the shaping paradigm through which they saw Jesus, his kingship and his kingdom. You see, while they were ready for Jesus to ride into the corridors of the Roman government and take hold of what they perceived to be their greatest problem, namely the throne room of Caesar, Jesus was riding that donkey to a Roman cross to take hold of the throne room of their hearts. You see, while Jesus came to the world to free the world from the grips of sin and death, and reign as the cosmic king of the universe. They saw Jesus as coming to simply free them from the grips of Rome and reign as king of the Jews. While Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God, made up of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, 
They saw Jesus as inaugurating a kingdom made up of the nation of Israel. While Jesus came to be slaughtered as the sacrificial lamb of heaven in order to bring salvation to the world, they saw Jesus as coming to slaughter in order to bring salvation to the Jews. You see, the palm branches they waved, the cries of Hosanna, are revealing of their desperation for liberation, which is right but it speaks even louder of their inclination to control the means by which it comes. You see, the agenda was already set for this crowd and Jesus was simply there to meet it. And many of us, like this Passover crowd, if we were to take careful and honest examination of our hearts, are proclaiming Jesus as king, crying out, Hosanna, but he is in fact little more than an errand boy for our preferred political agendas. Now, now Stonegate, please don't confuse what I am saying in this moment. It is not as if Jesus has nothing to say about the politics of this world or that the gospel has no implication on our need to be politically engaged. However, we all have a tendency to pick and choose where this reality applies. You see, it would only take but a few minutes at that Thanksgiving dinner table to reveal that more often than not, our convictions are shaped by our political ideologies and affiliations more than they are shaped by the ethics of the kingdom of God. Some of us, will wave our palm branches and cry out Hosanna, where the king and his kingdom call for us to care for the lives of the unborn, but are silent where it calls us to welcome the migrant and the immigrant and care for the poor even at the expense of our own comforts and gain. Others of us will wave our palm branches and cry out Hosanna, where the king and his kingdom call for us to welcome the other and combat injustice in all its forms, but are silent when it calls for us to live set apart and strive for holiness, even at the expense of society's snare. You see, my brothers and sisters, we, like this Passover crowd, are far too often found to be inconsistent because we are viewing Jesus through the lens of our politics rather than seeing our politics through the lens of Jesus. And my prayer this morning for you and I is that we would be honest about where we are and have done this and repent of such a sin. My prayer is that we would resist the urge and we all have this urge to build our hopes on the sinking sand of politicians and political parties and build them rather on the firm foundation of the life of Jesus Christ. He is not our political errand boy. He is our hope and he is inviting us to be a part of his kingdom, not seeking invitation to ours. And so this morning, 
can you and I invite the Holy Spirit to examine the places in our hearts where we have failed to love one another over our differing political opinions? Where we have placed more value on political strategies over the lives that those strategies affect? Can we invite the Holy Spirit this morning, church family, to examine the places in our hearts where we have placed our hope in, the, in America's White House rather than the throne room of God? I love how one pastor in Queens, New York puts it. He says, when we wave palms as followers of Jesus, we do so with a different spirit. We, we wave our palms with a post-cross resurrection perspective, trusting in God's way of salvation in Christ. You see, we don't wave our palms with our eyes simply on what's before us, but we cry Hosanna and we wave our palms with eternity in mind. We are people with an eternal perspective because of the resurrection of Jesus, but too often we are caught living our lives with tomorrow in view, with today in view, and not with eternity in view. And oftentimes, that failure to live with an eternal perspective drives us to put our hopes in our politics and politicians rather than Jesus. We believe that they have the better way, that our particular party has the better way, and refuse to recognize that Jesus is in fact the better way. And as we consider who King Jesus is this morning, my hope is that our perspective would be shaped by the cross he bore and the tomb he left empty that we would be shaped, that our idea of the kingship of Jesus would not be shaped by where his ethics and his commands align with our preferred politics, but where it aligns with eternity, where it aligns with his kingdom, not our own. But King Jesus in this moment, the crowd did not simply see him as a political zealot, but there were many who saw him as an imposter. Turn with me to that 12th chapter of John again, look in your Bibles, and let's consider verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. <clears throat> look, the world has gone after him. So not only did we have people in this crowd who saw Jesus as a political zealot, but there were many who saw him as an imposter. You see, this crowd was not purely made up of admirers of Jesus, but the Pharisees who weren't too fond of the master teacher were also present. Jesus had no friends with these religious leaders. In fact, they wanted him dead. Just earlier in the previous chapter of John's gospel account, we find them plotting and scheming to have him arrested and killed. 
As far as they were concerned, this is a man who has spoken words of blasphemy, dismissed their beloved traditions, and undercut their positions as the elders of Israel. You see, Jesus was nothing more than a thorn in their side, and they were prepared to rid themselves of him by any means necessary. As the crowd surrounding Jesus continues to swell, the Pharisees grow increasingly agitated. Their window of opportunity is slipping, and this man, Jesus, that they despise so much, seems to be on the rise. And ironically enough, their disdain for the pagan nation of Rome paled in, their, in comparison to their disdain for this so-called king. But what would cause, what would cause them to harbor such feelings for what seems to be a fairly harmless man? You see, when we look a bit deeper into the situation, it becomes clear that Jesus was a threat to these religious leaders. You see, they, they had managed to build their own little kingdom centered on their elitism and religious browbeating. They know that God's promised Messiah was coming and that he would reign as the one true king. But in their hard-heartedness and sinful pride, they refused to believe that it was Jesus. For them, King Jesus was no Messiah. He was no promised savior. In their eyes, he was an imposter, unworthy of their worship and adoration. And I am sure that there are many of us who, like these Pharisees, find Jesus to be offensive and threatening this morning. You may find his claims to be God as laughable. Or, or you may find his claim to be the only way to the Father as egotistically exclusive. And there may be some of you who view his followers as nothing more than judgmental hypocrites. And if that is you this morning, I just want to say one simple thing to you. I want to tell you with full confidence that Jesus loves you. That he loves you and he cares for you, that he cares deeply for you, so much so that he would eventually dismount that donkey and pick up a cross in order to die for your sins and mine. And so this morning, can I invite you, if you view Jesus as a threat to your life, as a threat to the kings that you have propped up, as a threat to you, can I invite you to turn away from that? Because those are fleeting kingdoms and fleeting kings. Can, can you turn away from those kingdoms that you've built up as Jesus invites you to repent of your sins and trust him as the Lord of your life this morning? Would you consider who King Jesus truly is, not who you think he is or what he has been made up to be, but consider who he really is this morning? A king who is rich in mercy and grace, ready to welcome you into the family of God. 
And for those of us who would want to tune out in a moment like this, because we're assured of the safety of our position with Jesus, can I invite us to pick up the magnifying glass and center it on our lives? Can we consider the spaces in our lives where Jesus is king in proclamation, but his kingship is absent in our application? Where we proclaim Jesus to be king, but we do not live our lives as though he is king. Some of you may not know this about me and others of you do. My wife knows this all too well, but I love sneakers. They are magnificent works of art and I love collecting them and buying them and wearing them to the glory of God. <laughs> Only to the glory of God. But when I think about these works of art, sneakers, one of which I have on this morning, when I think about that item, I think about a time in my life, particularly in the year 2013, you see, growing up for me, I wasn't able to get Jordans. I was one of six, and my mom wasn't about buying me Jordans week in and week out. I grew up on Payless shoes and shacks. <laughs> and in 2013, I had just started serving in the Navy. And I was making my own money now. And I had my own bank account. And I would find myself week in and week out visiting a site known as ebay.com, looking for any sneaker that I could find, willing to spend any amount of money to get that particular sneaker that I desired. There was no price tag too high for me to buy that item because I wanted it that much. Now hear me, I'm not saying that there's something wrong with buying sneakers because I still buy them to, to, to today. But the problem was, the problem was that those sneakers, th those items drove how I spent my money. If you were to look back on my life in 2013, there was no evidence of me giving. There was no evidence of me using my money responsibly. There was no evidence of me stewarding my money according to the commands and the ethics of the kingdom of God. My money went where my heart was going and that is to my king, which was sneakers. And there are many of you who have a functioning king despite the fact that you declare that Jesus is your king. The way you spend your money, the way you spend your time is evidence of who is in fact the king of your life. That newer and bigger house is more important to you being able to get that new car is more important to you. Making sure that your kids are, are, are involved in, in a multitude of activities, even at the expense of the fellowship of the saints and being a consistent member of the body of Christ, that is your driving force. 
You, you can cry Hosanna all you want to. We can declare Jesus as king all we want to, but our lives are declaring something entirely different. That despite the fact that we say Jesus is king, he is in fact not our king. He is not the person that is dictating and that is, and that is uh, influencing the way that we live our lives. And Jesus is not interested, nor is he satisfied with us giving lip service to his kingship. But we must submit all of our lives to his rule and reign. He is not interested in being the king of some of your life, but all of your life. And as Christians, when people take a peek into our lives, it should reflect the heart of the king we exclaim and the kingdom to which we belong. Your life ought to match your proclamation. And so I invite you to think about what are those places in your life? What are those things in your life that despite the fact that you declare Jesus as king, serve as your functioning king? What is driving your heart's desires? What is driving the way you spend your money and time? Is it Jesus or is it something else? And if you recognize that it is something else, the invitation of Jesus to you this morning is to lay that thing down. Is to remove that idol and allow Jesus to sit on the throne room of your heart where he belongs. And so the crowd saw Jesus as a political zealot Others saw him as an imposter, but Jesus wanted them to see him in a particular way. Jesus wanted this crowd, and he wants you and I this morning to see him as the glorified Savior. Turn with me one last time to John chapter 12, and let us now examine verses 20 through 26. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so while some of us may, like this crowd, see Jesus as a political zealot, others of us see Jesus as an imposter, Jesus this morning, I believe, wants to invite us to see him as the glorified Savior. 
in response to the request to be seen by these Greek admirers, Jesus discloses that the time had finally come for him to be glorified. And strangely enough, Jesus doesn't describe this glorification in ways that would seem to align with the meaning of that term. Jesus doesn't speak of being honored or adored or praised or revered. He uses, he uses an agricultural parable to describe what would be his glorification through death. This is an odd response to a request to be seen, but there is something eternally beautiful that Jesus is wanting us to see this morning. I mean, was his death even necessary? Why did this man have to die at all? In one sense, he didn't have to. The grain of wheat could remain alone and be just fine, but it would fail to bear any fruit unless it was planted in the soil and died. And Jesus, like that grain of wheat, would have, could have taken a pass on death and been just fine, but would have failed to bear the sweet fruit of our salvation. You see, Jesus didn't have to die, but he chose to die in his relentless pursuit with love for rebellious sinners in this world. And while the world with God alone, existing in triune fellowship, would have been more than enough Jesus wants us to see how infinitely greater is a world where sinners could receive the free gift of salvation and be reconciled to their loving Father. You see, this was the mission of King Jesus, to take on an enemy far greater than the Roman Empire, much stronger than any army, more oppressive than any corrupt government, Jesus was prepared to take on our greatest enemy of sin and death. And so this king did in fact come to conquer, just not in a way that anyone would be expecting. Because most kings, on their way to enthronement, are anointed with oil. But this king was spat on and mocked. Most kings are endowed with royal garments, but this king was clothed in scraps that would be ripped off of his body. Most kings are crowned with a crown of jewels, but this king was crowned with a crown of thorns. Most kings hear it proclaimed, long live the king, but this king heard it proclaimed, crucify him. Most kings are equipped with sword and shield, but this king was equipped with a wooden cross. They nailed his body to that cross and they hung him high and they stretched him wide. You see, most kings are seated on a ruling throne, but this king was laid in a borrowed tomb. A stone was used to seal up the tomb and Roman guards stood watch 24-7. He laid there alone. No angels to exalt him. Nobody to help him. No friends to console him. His supporters 
were disappointed. The Pharisees were elated. His disciples were afraid. Hell couldn't believe it. The devil was glad about it. Jesus was in the grave. You see, on Friday, they were crying. On Saturday, they were mourning. But come Sunday, they'd be rejoicing because early on that Sunday morning, Mary and Martha were headed to the gravesite to see about the body of Jesus. But much to their surprise, the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was now empty and death had been defeated. The grave had lost its sting and sin had met its conqueror because Jesus is alive. You see, he got up that Sunday morning in his glorified body with all power and authority in his hands. And now you and I, whether we want to or not, must deal with the kingship of Jesus. And so you ask me this morning, who is King Jesus? He is the glorified king who died for the sins of the world. You may ask, who is King Jesus? Jesus, he is the victorious king who has removed the sting of death and defeated the grave forever. You ask me, who is King Jesus? He is the loving king who died, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. You ask, who is King Jesus? He is the gracious king who extends mercy to all, who would call on his name for salvation. Who is King Jesus? He is the empowering king who, who sends his Holy Spirit to empower his people and give witness to his glorious gospel. Who is King Jesus? He is the ascended king who sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father who is King Jesus. He is the soon and coming King who will return with all power in his hands and consummate the kingdom of God and reign forever. This is King Jesus. He is the deliverer to the burdened. He is healer to the sick. He is freedom to the oppressed. He is father to the fatherless. He is savior of sinners. This is King Jesus. And he is worthy of our honor and our worship and our praise this morning, church. This king laid down his life for you and I, and he deserves nothing less than our lives laid down for him. So as you consider who King Jesus is this morning, can I invite you to see him as he presents himself? Can I invite you to see King Jesus as the glorified Savior? And the places in your life where you have seen him wrongly, the places where he has served as your political zealot, where you have engaged with him as some sort of imposter, Jesus is warning you this morning to see him as that glorified Savior who did not come to harm you, but to rescue you. Who came to love you. And he demonstrated that love by dying on a cross, 
by taking on an enemy that was yours, defeating that enemy on your behalf, so that if you would embrace him, if you would bow the knee to his kingship, you too can now be conqueror over the grave through King Jesus and look forward to a bright future with him forevermore. So as we prepare to pray, I leave you with this. Do not walk out of here this morning holding on to your false ideas of who King Jesus is, but grab hold of the real King Jesus, the Jesus that died, the Jesus that was buried, and the Jesus that is alive forevermore. Let's pray. Father, as we sit here considering who your son Jesus is, as we take stock of his kingship this morning, Holy Spirit, would you, would you give us HD clarity to see Jesus rightly this morning? For those of us that, that view Jesus as some sort of political errand boy, would you, would you revert that this morning in our hearts? For those of us that see Jesus as an imposter who is not worthy of our time, would you remove the veil from those eyes this morning? Help us to see him as our glorified Savior. Help us to see our need for Jesus this morning. Help us to take stock of our souls and look to Jesus for hope and redemption and salvation. Help us to turn our eyes away from the idols that we cling to, the kings that we ascribe to and the kingdoms that we choose to live in. Father, help us to turn away from that this morning and run to King Jesus. Help us to run to the one true king, the only one that can help us, the only one that can save us, the only one that can redeem us. We love you, Father. We believe that you want to do this in us. In the Spirit of God, we pray that you would do that even now. It's in your son's Jesus' good name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.